Welcome to the Mix Masters Podcast, a program created by me, Steve Litcher, live sound engineer for the band Stitched Up Heart. I created this podcast during the COVID pandemic as a means to keep in contact with my friends and mentors from the live sound industry. Touring with Stitched Up Heart has led me to meet some really incredible people, and I wanted to introduce you to their stories. So whether you're an experienced engineer, a hobbyist, or someone who's just wondered what goes into mixing a live music show, this podcast is for you. I've got to thank my friend Merritt Goodwin for this killer intro music. Merritt is the lead guitarist for Stitched Up Heart, and he's an incredible musician and composer. Give him a shout on Facebook at Merritt Goodwin, or on Instagram at Doubt the Trust. Thanks again for joining me. Now let's bring up the faders and start the podcast. My guest for this episode is Ben Turkovic. Ben lives in the Kansas City area, where he's made quite a name for himself as a recording engineer. Like so many people in this industry, Ben wears many hats, which is fortunate because I met Ben while on tour with Steel Panther when he was serving as their lighting director. I got to know Ben as we traveled across North America, and I found his stories and experiences to be absolutely fascinating. We'll focus more on studio recording in this episode, and I'm totally okay with that, as many live engineers got their start in the studio. Fair warning, we did have a number of technical challenges during this particular recording. I blame Skype and the unusually high amount of traffic their service is seeing during the pandemic. We had to stop and start several times, and there are quite a few interruptions to the audio. I apologize for that, but I hope you'll still be able to follow along and enjoy what Ben has to say. I also had a few senior moments during this podcast. For some reason, I had the band Norma Jean at the front of my mind, and I incorrectly and continually referred to them several times while talking to Ben. Thankfully, he's a pro, and he got me back on track without too many hiccups. Ben tours with Shaman's Harvest, Steel Panther, and of course the aforementioned Norma Jean. You can find him online. Just click on the links in his Instagram profile from the show notes for today's podcast. Please enjoy this episode, and apologies again for the technical glitches. Hey, everybody. Uh, welcome to Mixmasters Podcast. I'm joined today by Ben Turkovic. Um, I met Ben while I was on tour with Steel Panther last fall, and Ben was serving as the lighting director for Steel Panther. And uh, my hat's off to Ben for a number of reasons, but more so because he's not normally a lighting director, and yet he stepped into the role and did an amazing job on lights, despite having some uh, technical glitches during the first show. Um, he pointed that out at an earlier time that uh, that we met. Uh, and in full disclosure, Ben and I did do this interview once earlier, but uh, we had some technical difficulties. The internet was overwhelmed. Um, Skype was saturated, and it just wasn't a very cohesive interview. So I wanted to uh, get back together with Ben and uh, make sure that everybody had a chance to meet him the way that I know him and uh, really get to know more about him. So Ben, thanks for coming on uh, a second time and enduring uh, my stupid questions, uh, not once, but twice. Oh, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Yeah, no, this is, I'm really excited. Um, I should also mention that Ben is primarily a recording engineer and is excellent at it. So I'll probably focus more on the recording side of things versus the live sound side of things. Although you do, you've done some things with some uh, fairly notable bands, uh, but I think we'll try to focus a little bit more on the recording side if that's cool. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. All right, well, let's let's jump in here and get started. So um, 
For those not familiar with Ben, he's living in the Kansas City area. Are, are you from Kansas City pretty much your whole life or? Yeah, born and raised, same area on the, on the Kansas side. I mean, Kansas City is both Kansas and Missouri. There's a big rivalry there, but holding it down for Kansas over here. So Nice, representing the, the KC. Yeah. <laughs> Awesome. Uh, and then tell us a little bit about your musical history. I know you're a drummer, um, but besides that, I don't really know a ton about your musical history. How did you get started in music and what eventually led you to recording as a discipline that you were interested in? Um, I kind of come from a vaguely musical family, not really directly. Uh, my, actually, both my parents are high school teachers. Uh, my mom was a uh, drill team like dance coach for many many years so there's always kind of be the you know the rhythm aspect of that and uh she's always been a big music fan um and my dad too my dad's kind of one of these weird guys who like if i asked him what his favorite bands were he wouldn't have an answer he's just kind of anything that has a decent tune that he can hum along with he is like very musical he goes to a winfield bluegrass music festival every year just because he likes camping out and hanging out and um i mean if there's a bonfire and a few beers around he'll bust out a harmonica but it's not really it, neither are really musicians my grandma's kind of you know plays piano but um again I, I just i don't really come from a musical family directly but sort of if that makes any sense oh sure um yeah so uh I don't know. I got a little like toy drum kit when I was around three or so. Didn't really take it seriously. I'm not going to pretend like, oh, I've been drumming since I was three. Like, nah, it was it was around and I would hit on it and all that stuff. But um, yeah, through junior high and high school, started kind of finding my own, joining bands, doing whatever. Um, actually kind of started playing guitar first, but just real elementary, not, not that great at it. And um I don't know. I think with uh, I think with most bands, young bands, there's one person who tries to kind of like figure out oh how a computer works, and so they you know they figure out how to record stuff. Like I remember um, getting Microsoft Sound Recorder and going and getting one of those horrendous little uh, eighth inch input microphones from Office Depot and putting that in front of just a ridiculous Fender solid state amp with a boss ds1 distortion being like oh yeah i can make a cd now and um and so that was kind of how it how that all started i always found it interesting to you know want to make an album and then it it progressed from there so yeah wow that's uh that's crazy i was going to ask if you ever ventured away from the drums uh but it sounds like guitar was short-lived and then you went back to percussion yeah it, it was and it's one of those things now where I can play enough of each instrument to be dangerous at it. But, you know, guitars, I'm just like just straight bar chords. Um, I'm a pretty, de pretty decent singer. Um, but it's like in, a, in that movie Mystery Men when the guy can go invisible only when people aren't looking at him. That's kind of me with singing. It's like if I'm alone in a studio setting, like I can do some really good vocals. But if someone wants me to sing in front of them, I've got to be nearly blackout drunk before... I'm actually willing to sing in front of everyone. So that's kind of where I'm at with that. But yeah, drums are definitely the primary thing for me. Yeah. I do see you have a, a popper stopper in front of you and um, probably oh, yeah. not, probably not enough beer for me to get you to sing something on the podcast. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Start doing some steel Panther covers here in a few <laughs> community property, uh, yeah. 17 girls. Yeah. All the fun stuff. Um, 
So, yeah. yeah. So, okay. So you're, you're starting to take recording seriously, um, or you're, you're very interested in it. You're, you're goofing around with the, the eight. I, I think I had that same microphone if it's what I'm envisioning. Uh, oh yeah. It's a weird gooseneck. Like, <laughs> yeah, just horrible, like black plastic thing. I, there, there was no way to make it sound good. It was just, yeah. it was basically a cell phone microphone in a larger, uh, container yeah you know, there was no benefit to it yeah i uh i i swear we i had the same one as you did um so where did you go from there you you obviously were interested in recording and the engineering side of things did you end up going to school for recording or what did you do when you got out of uh high school yeah i well the transition out of high school into sort of community college thing i Actually, what got me really interested in it is I found like bootleg ripoffs of Guitar Hero. Uh, actually, they're mogs. They were like .mogg, so multi-track ogs. And I found those online, and it would be these Guitar Hero songs stemmed out, and I could open them up in Audacity, and I could just solo it, and it's like, oh, that's just the kick drummer. Oh, those are just the toms, and so like, and that started getting me going. Like, this is really, really cool, and it started mainly because I just found it really cool to hear um, isolated versions of songs that I knew. And, uh, you know, and I like record covers over them or whatever. But um, yeah, I, I found a fascination with the idea of like multi-track recording and having things separated and being able to manipulate each thing. And so I was a person who kind of knew enough about that. I mean, at that point, it was still the idea of multi-track recording wasn't really big at that point. And I'm, I, I just turned 27. So I'm not like, you know, old take dog, but like, um, when I was getting into it, you had like, you had pro tool, pro tools eight was the newest thing and you still had to use inboxes. So the best one you could have was inbox pro, which was what, uh, four i'm looking at one right now because i still have it it's what four preamps six total inputs so if you mix it with another interface or something you can get six multi-track things if it doesn't stop you in the middle of it um so yeah it, being able to like see that stuff stemmed out was really interesting to me um usually how i recorded was just through a pa system that had eight uh preamps in it, and then you just get the rca out and then just th just jam it right into a laptop and into whatever. And it's just, there's your drums. Um, so I was into that and I started going to a community college that offered some sort of recording thing. So I was like, cool, let's do that. I originally was going to go for video production and I figured audio was going to be a, something that I was always going to be a part of because that's the thing with me when it came to music. I was like, I don't know exactly what I want to do with it, but I know I want to do something musical. So whether that be a music teacher or a you know rock star drummer or touring person, whatever. Um, so I started taking those classes, and about the same time, I started interning for a, uh, a Joshua Barber, who is a a uh, producer and engineer in Kansas City, and has worked on a bunch of stuff, everything from the Norm Jean albums I've worked on to uh, he was with Strange Music, working for Tech Nine for a long time. And um, so I started interning for him, and right about the same time. And there's a few times where I was in my community college recording class, and some kids were showing the professor, like, oh, check out this picture. One of my favorite bands is recording in Kansas City. 
and they were showing him pictures of the Norma Jean album I was kind of moonlighting and working on. And I was like, that's, that's kind of cool. So, um, yeah, it's sort of just happy accidents falling into it. And, uh, yeah, that's kind of how I transitioned into full-on air quote engineer, producer. Oh, yeah. No, it's it's really interesting because I've heard this from a number of people there's equal parts, you know, what you know and who you know, and then being in the right place at the right time. And it sounds like that sort of applied to your situation. Yeah. yeah. Um, so then uh, can you talk a little bit about some of those uh, early experiences with, with Josh and what you were doing at the studio and some of the things you were trying to pick up or, you know, what was he having you work on in those early phases? Um, early, see, he was really good about, uh, there was a lot of interns before me um, and, and plenty after. I think I was the only one who really made the cut. I'm, I think I'm one of a handful that I know who, you know, still work with him on stuff and that this is going on better part of a decade at this point. Um, and uh, I, so it was never like, Oh, just go get coffee and this and that. It was always like kind of hands-on stuff. And it was always a lot of tough love stuff. That That's another part where, I've sort of developed that with, with clients who are wanting to improve. Um, you sort of walk a thin line of, you have a, there's like the engineering role where it's just, uh, okay, I'll press buttons, make this sound better. And then there's kind of the producer role where you're like, I'm going to sort of be your life coach. We're going to take what you have mold it into something better. And, um, and Josh was a big help with that because, he uh i was no stranger to like you know getting a text message hey these bass edits suck get it better or don't come back and like that sounds really harsh as an introduction but like if you know him and know his personality it's the sort of thing where he's not going to waste time on telling you to improve he's just gonna be like all right see ya sort of thing so it was there was a lot of moments where um sort of broke down i'm like uh you know i always oh, mad at me or i can't do this or this and that and it's like no you just got to go all right you know this is a learning experience let me uh, let me do better on those base edits how do i need to do that um so uh early on i was picking up i was doing the stuff that it just takes time to do you know like drum edit stuff even it, on the first norwegian record i wasn't doing a ton of like drum edits because that was that's more uh, involved. Um, it was more just, Hey, go there, do this. I need this mic, go grab this, you know, Hey, we want to set up this, you know, and I'll kind of get it in the ballpark and then he'll kind of do more, uh, final mic placement and stuff. But, um, but yeah, that was kind of the early stages. And, and a lot of it was watching what he was doing on pro tools. That was a huge part of it is watching, uh, because at the same time I was learning, um, really basic stuff at in the community college realm. So I was so that going to school helped a ton because I was learning the real fundamentals of Pro Tools and how to work it and stuff. And then I would go kind of moonlight in this other situation where I, it was way more in depth stuff. And I was going, oh, okay, I can apply this to what I'm doing in my classes. And so it, it helped me a ton with my classes. But uh, yeah, the the advantage was doing both at the same time for sure. Oh yeah. You get a mix of like theory and practical mm -hmm. and you get to apply, you know, parts of both. And I can see where that would be hugely beneficial. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's a, that's a big part to, uh, um, to do because also the, the problem with 
recording schools and stuff is it's usually taught by people who haven't recorded anything in a long time because they're teachers. So it's uh, the the concepts that they're pushing and implementing are a lot of times pretty antiquated from what is being used. And so that was that was one of those things where it's like at at that time, the idea of putting any sort of drum samples was not really a thing. Um, you had Drumagog, which was the latest and greatest. And now you've got like, you know, Trigger and all this other stuff that's great. Um, but like Drumagog, horrible latency. And it was just, it wasn't phase accurate. And it was just so that, you know, at that point you weren't doing that. But Josh is one of these guys who was always like pushing that envelope. And like, oh no, let's learn. Let, let's go beyond that and do, you know, the future or whatever that, whatever that means. Um, yeah, so it, it was, it was really nice to have a, uh, sort of basic rundown and then also a more advanced type thing. Yeah. Oh yeah. You're making my mind, uh, work overtime here because I'm thinking of all of these questions, uh, that I hadn't thought of until we just started talking about this now. But oh, yeah. uh, I'm a recording dummy. I'm I'm a live sound guy where I can get away with a lot more. Uh, I can make more mistakes and fewer people notice. And it's also not imprinted in all of time, uh, you know, by way of an album or a, a CD or a recording. But um, what are, when you're talking about doing drum edits or bass edits um, during those early stages, what exactly were you having to do? Um, maybe not on the Norma Jean album, but on on other things you know like what does that entail um actually exactly how we did it would be uh and, the, and i say the the royal we it was kind of how josh, and that's a funny thing i, I bring up josh a lot because he's a big part of you know how i came to be um but uh so a big part of it was um at that time it was a phase where we were experimenting a lot with uh, sort of the, I guess I call it, would call it like the periphery style of stuff because they made it really popular. The super digitized, throw it into a 16 note grid, cut out the science, kind of stuff. And so it was finding a way, so it was super um, heavy on editing. Even times where we would uh, track a band say 10 bpm slower cut every single strum lock it to the grid and then speed the grid up to where everything is played it's played naturally and it has those natural transitions however it's tightened up to the to a faster grid so it closes um it closes those gaps between the audio and makes it way smoother so it's not stretching anything and you aren't getting any uh, artifacts or anything like that um but anyway sidetrack back to the drums how it would be is a song would take almost all day because what it would what you do is zoom in go to the exact transient the exact zero point of when that's hit um you know figure out if the phase starts up or down cut it there lock it to the grid go to the next one same thing so on and so forth because again you didn't really have automatic triggering that was phase accurate so you had to make sure every single hit was phase accurate on the grid and then You'd find a sample you really liked. You would create a keyboard macro that would go. Let's see. You would. It would be tab, then semicolon, then V, then uh, P, then tab again, which would tab it to the transient of the hit, 
go down to the next track, would paste your sample, then go back to the other track, and then tab back over to the next transient. So it would just basically go and it would copy and paste a sample to every single hit. And then at the end of that, you could snap it to the grid and you know that it's phase accurate. So when stuff like trigger came along, it was like, this is great to put stuff on because you don't have to do stuff like that because drum edits were a big thing. And that was a lot of, you know, getting in the trenches of it. It's just like, Hey, I'm going to be working on guitar edits or bass edits. Can you be doing drums while we're doing this? Or it, it'll be Q do drums. And then I send that over and then they track guitars and stuff to that while I'm doing drums on the next song. And it becomes a back and forth thing. And, um, and actually, I mean, we continue that type of thing to this day. You'll have me on sessions and we're working together on stuff and doing that exact same thing. So, wow. Yeah. That's uh that's hard for my, pea brain to even comprehend <laughs> to do. when you were talking about those keyboard shortcuts i was just thinking about the old uh contra cheat codes you know from nintendo right. up up down down <laughs> oh yeah you got like well and the weird thing with me is like at home i'm working on windows in the studios i'm on mac so it gets real weird but yeah you got like you know you get really used to certain key uh shortcuts you know like dragon claw which like your hand is like all crooked look like kung fu style and that's uh, command shift three, which consolidates the region. So like, like you just get so used to stuff. Yeah. Um, like if you ever want to really mess with me, you just go to preferences and change keyboard shortcuts and I will just flip the desk. Like that's the most frustrating thing when something isn't responding. So I know what I'm doing next April fools. I'm driving down to Kansas city and, uh, while you're away, yeah. I'll be <laughs> having fun at your expense. Right. Um, okay, so you, you've been working with Josh, and, and you started on sort of the more mundane things, but I'm guessing that that really helped you build up a, a solid foundation, and you know you get to do some of the, the harder, more tedious things, but then it also gets ingrained in you. Um, what do you find yourself doing these days for studio work, and what's your approach for... Uh, are you more of a recording engineer, a mastering engineer, an editing engineer? Um, I really know very little about the recording side. So I apologies if, if that's not a, a straightforward question. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, I think I'm known more for editing. Um, so the, the studio I work for primarily, um, is owned by a very successful businessman. He built a multi-million dollar studio in the basement of this mansion. It's super, it's better than like most commercial studios. And, um, and he writes songs and hires really awesome session musicians to uh, play on them and sing on them and stuff like that. And um, and then he'll record the drums to them, and we just kind of go from there. So I, a lot of it has been you know, focused on drum tracking, then drum editing. Editing is really heavy. I think that's more the thing that I'm. If I if I'm known at all, that's one of the things that I'm known for is you know, being able to edit the hell out of things and make them really transparent feeling. Um, but, uh, I mean, it varies. I think the more day-to-day -day stuff I do, I'm definitely more engineer focused where I'm just like, okay, I got like what I just came from today is okay. We, we had three songs sent from Nashville that have these bass tracks on them, you know, just in, throw those into the sessions, give them a little quick mix, toss them up, 
we can listen to them, review them, and then see where we go from there. Um, and then this coming week, I'm going to have a band that's going to be in for about a week that's totally different. And they're like these young kids going, hey, we got these song ideas. We love the stuff you've done. Um, we want you to work with us and make it better. So I think the primary hat is editing, uh, engineering, and then the kind of secondary thing I do is more producing, working with bands. But um, honestly, the producing thing is slowed down just because COVID and whatnot. You know what I mean? Like there's not many bands that are like, hey, we're trying to do this thing. It's sort of isolated in this thing. So anything that I can do from home, i.e. editing and that kind of stuff is sort of in the bread and butter for a little while. Yeah, that's um, that's something that I also admire people that have that ability is um, the, the producing side of it. I don't know how you are able to tell somebody who's, you know, spent the last six or seven months of their life creating something and then they go in and record it and you're like, you know what, that's good. But uh, here's what I think, you know, is do you find that right. challenging? Um, no, because it's sort of it's sort of a situation where you're the boss it's like, what are you going to do? You're, you, you know, you paid me. <laughs> but um, no, because usually you find the right kind of people. And the the thing is, is bands will have strong members and they'll have weak members. They'll have, And studio settings really bring that out. You It separates the, the men from the boys, the strong from the weak. And you find the, you know, the, uh, the guitarist who really isn't, contributing much or you find the bassist who's off time and and totally not playing with any feel and you find the drummer who doesn't know how to hit correctly and stuff like that and um so a, a lot of what it is is just kind of being a therapist and and uh breaking down what it is that is making uh making issues with what's going on like why why do these guitar parts not sound huge well it, you're doing this. So let's adapt to this. And the, the, the right kind of people, the people who are going to make it are going to go, Oh, that's awesome. And they're going to adapt to that. And they're going to go, yeah, I was totally doing it this different way, but I just realized if I, you know, switch the gauge of my pick, or if I move, uh, how I'm holding, if I change how I'm holding my stick or like if I, if I change my posture when I'm singing, like I can, I can do all this new stuff. And those are the people who succeed. Um, and usually in recording settings, you get sometimes you hit a home run and you have a band that everyone's just on the same page and killing it. But usually, you that that weak member gets weeded out. So it's it's kind of rewarding. You you it it's uh, it's tough at the beginning, but then things start to go really smooth once everyone gets on the same page. Um, but yeah, a lot of the job is just being a therapist because you know we're all just people in a room making art and talking about feelings and stuff like that at the end of the day there's a lot of technical stuff to it but when you really boil it down that's all we're doing so the more you can capture an emotion the better so yeah wow yeah that's uh my hat's off to you again i said that earlier but uh, i'm gonna run out of hats here pretty soon because (laughs) (laughs) i uh i could not do that i that's the nice thing about the live scenario is you know i can i listen and i solo in on certain channels but I'm not studying them. I'm looking for, you know, things that I want to just adjust a little bit or, um, you know, if they need a lot of work, there's really not much I can do in a live scenario. So, um, yeah, I, I feel like, I feel like live though, you get that energy, you know, it's more, it's, it's a little more organic of an energy, like capturing the personality of what that group is. It's, 
Yeah. Which, which I definitely envy. It's kind of hard in a studio setting because you get people who are super nervous and they don't know they're, they're focused on perfection and they're not just focused on just doing what they do. And sometimes doing what they do is not a good thing. Like sometimes like, Hey man, you just go, you do you. And it's horrible. And it's like, Oh, maybe you shouldn't do you. Like maybe that's the problem. Um, but like, yeah, I mean, you, you're, you've been working with bands that they, they do, they do what they do and they do it well. So it's, it's, uh, you know, not to downplay, but I mean, like, I feel like it would be easier almost to capture that when it's a band that's talented and knows what they're doing. It's like, all right, cool. And that plus the energy of a live show, it's like, all right, this, this works, you know, and I, I definitely envy that for a lot of reasons. Cause I've had way too many times where, yeah, I mean, honestly, a lot of times, uh, not a lot of times, but there's been times where a vocalist just isn't cutting it. And I turn off all the lights in the studio and I hand him an SM58 and I'm like, and I, and I, I put a little uh, a cab or, or something there for them to put their foot on. And I'm like, look, no one's watching you. The lights are off. You're in the dark. Put your leg up on this. Pretend it's a stage monitor. Close your eyes and just go for it. And those are some of the best takes, you know? So it's like, I, it, uh, it, it's, it's difficult finding that. And that's a, that's a thing that live, I think you can get. Yeah, man, that's, that's fascinating that you came up with an idea for sort of getting into their head and, and getting them into that comfort zone or taking advantage of that energy without actually being in a club. That's, that's a, I never would have thought of that. <laughs> yeah. It's, it, that's the other thing, kind of being, being therapist, you got to get into people's heads. Like I, a lot of, uh, if people have timing issues, I've seen a lot of people who, will play very consistently, but they'll play consistently ahead to where it's maybe a 30-second note ahead to where you cut that, you just nudge it back just a hair, and everything is dead on. Then you get some people who are really laggy and stuff like that, and a lot of times if someone's way ahead, I'll say, hey, just mess it up. They're like, what do you mean? I'm like, well, just mess it up. Well, how, how so? I'm like, okay, this next take, try and make me laugh. Try and sing it so slow behind the beat that I'm going to be like, dude, you're so off. What are you doing? And they're like, Oh, okay. And I hit record and they're dead on, you know, and it, it's just kind of stuff like that. Like some people just hear things differently. They have a different vibe. And so, um, a lot of it is tuning into that room, seeing how people do things and then adapting to that because the more comfortable you can make someone in that environment, the better results you're going to get, which means the less work for you in the end. So yeah, work smarter, not harder. Exactly. Um, but anyway, I actually, you, you were saying, uh, now that I think about it, you're talking about like how I approach things now. Um, and so I've learned that, uh, and now I approach things way less hands-on I try and do way less editing. I try and do more of capturing what's going on or improving and then improving on it. Um, and of course you're going to get some people that are just it's not good and you have to really hold hands through the whole thing. And it's really just, yeah, I got to make the best out of this, even though it's not going to be that great. Like we just got to push through, um, which is fine because at the very least those are learning experiences, um, for both you and the band. But whereas I used to be very to the grid exact, uh, zero point of every single drum hit this and that, uh, as time's gone, as time has gone on, I've gotten away from that a lot and gotten more into the letting things be loose, letting things breathe where they need to. Um, now there's anything wrong with very sterile kind of editing and everything, but, um, as 
as I've progressed, I've gotten away from it a lot. So I, I, I used to have a real, uh, real sterile hands-on thing. And now I'm a little bit more laid back with how I approach things. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's cool. Um, man, my brain is just spinning around where I want to go <laughs> next. Uh, I'm trying to keep this, uh, congruent, but I think we're going to end up sort of hopping around. So I apologize to you and everybody. Oh, it's listening. good. Just, just make it chaos. Let's just make it fun. So <laughs> perfect. We'll blast beat and ghost note this thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so man. Okay. Uh, take us through the process. So I'm thinking like to when, when I line check at a, at a show, you know, I, everybody, every sound guy, channel one is kick channel two is snare, mm-hmm. you know, blah, 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 blah. What's your process for laying out your your recording console, and when you're setting up the recording session, what are you trying to capture first? And can you sort of walk us through that workflow for yourself? Um, drums are, you know, kind of the see. Drums are interesting because, and not to say that other instruments don't, but drums cover a massive frequency range. You have. Uh, Total. Also, full disclaimer: I'm I'm not a super technical guy. I'm I'm not a oh let's notch three dB at one point five k kind of guy. Like I'm more like hey, I like what it sounds like when I turn that knob, whatever frequency that is. That's cool. Let's do that. So um, so forgive me if any specifics that I'm saying are totally off. But uh, when you have a drum kit, you're going into the you know, you've got 15K and up if you really want some sizzly cymbals and stuff like that, which I'm really into, um, all the way down to, I mean, I guess if you're going real hard with a sub kick, you know, you can get down to like 50K, 50 hertz, 50K, holy shit, um, <laughs> 50 hertz. And, uh, and, and so it, it's, uh, and it's weird because, again, the individual drums, you have, they're, they cover a wide frequency band all into themselves but it's different ones so you have you have toms where you have a uh, you know a smack at you know from three to six k but you also want to have that low end from like you know 250 and down for it and so the the natural thing is to kind of scoop that mid out of it but same thing with kick you get you know some thump down around a hundred and then you get some smack around six K and, uh, and stuff like that. So drums are the biggest thing to start with. Um, and I've, I used to be very big into just close mic, everything, every little splash and thing, like throw a little pencil condensers on everything and, you know, get it to where it used to be like a prideful thing. Like, Oh yeah, we got 22 tracks of drums going on. Um, and I've kind of started to strip that down to uh i was just talking to an assistant of mine where he was asking me to come in and check out some drums that he recorded and he was saying like you know oh what do you think this i'm like it's it's not bad but it seems like you're overwhelmed he's like what do you mean i'm like you've got too many mics going on you've got too many phase issues and and it seems like you you're putting a, a kick in and a kick out because you've seen someone do that you're doing a snare top and snare bottom because you think you need to do that when you should be going, do I need, do I need a snare bottom? Which is a, an interesting concept that one that I've been battling with recently where, uh, actually what I've started doing is ignorantly boosting around 200, 250 on a snare bottom to give tremendous amounts of low end 
to to the snare because the thing is uh and this is just my own philosophy with it i think most people approach a snare bottom as you get that sizzle and the snare sound that's what makes it sound like a snare but when you hear a lot of that sizzle it doesn't sound like a snare it sounds they they sound very disconnected it's not one mic um producing half of the sound and the other one complementing it it's just kind of two separate sounds you get this like harsh sizzle thing that you don't hear when you're standing in front of a snare that doesn't that's not what you hear um so i started just boosting a ton of low end on it and when i bring it up it almost sounds like a, a sample it's giving it just a really intense low end every time they hit it and it's giving a little hair of that sizzle to it and so um before i started doing that i'd i'd mute the snare bottom and i'd and, and i wouldn't miss it in the overall mix and then i would start putting it in there with a ton of low end boosted and go, okay, this is really adding something to it. Now I miss it if it's gone. And I think that's the thing that I've started to do is I start to go throughout the entire drum kit and uh, get everything set up and then go, do I miss this once I start muting it? And if I don't miss it, then get rid of it because all it's doing is causing me problems. I'm going to have to deal with it later. Um, for the long for a long time i haven't even used a ride mic because i'll be compressing the overheads enough that the, that ping is getting through and it sounds natural to it because a, a ride mic is going to be giving you a lot of low end from proximity effect so when it's right in there you're getting this like weird wash that doesn't sound natural but if it's just coming from the overheads and you're just getting that that ping from it it makes sense so and then you can apply that thinking to a lot of different things so when i'm setting up a session i go what's the genre what does this need to sound like? And then start carving out space with the kit. Because then, you know, if you have, if you already have a space for everything within the drum kit, then it becomes really easy. Because then you just throw up a bass or a guitar next to your drum tracks. And as soon as it fits, you're like, okay, that's it. You know, versus again, when I was starting out, it, I would just go like, let me make the perfect kick drum sound and then pair it with the perfect snare drum sound. And at the end of it, I go, huh, I have no room for anything else. So I, I guess the the way to put that simply is I've started to set things up really mix prepped. You know, I started getting mix ready from the get go, which takes time. You have to know what you want within a mix. But um, that's been my biggest thing. My newest idea. <laughs> yeah. So there's been a lot of discussion around fitting stuff into the mix. Um, and for people who may not be as familiar uh, with some of the lingo as, as we are, it's not as easy as like you, you outlined it perfectly. You said, you know, you'd get the kick drum sounding perfectly and then you'd get the snare sounding perfectly. And everybody, a lot of people think you just bring the faders up and it all works magically, but you've got to actually make room. Otherwise everything gets, it's stepping on one another. Mm -hmm. Do you have any tricks for creating some of that space in your mix for those different frequencies and not getting that competition? Um, I mean, it, it's, uh, and it's weird because everything is different. I mean, it, anything from what bass you're using to the pickups on it, to the amp you're using to mic placement or whatever, like it all plays such a weird factor in it. So sometimes you have to get really nasty with it and just start doing some aggressive EQ cuts. Um, I mean, really, you can find those charts all day long where it has like the frequency brand, frequency band, and it, it has a frequency spectrum, and what falls into what place. And I really kind of get into that. Like, you get anything from 
50 and under, it's like you've got some sub stuff there. You've got maybe some sub kick. You get up to 100, I, I would call that like 100 to 50. That's sort of your like low end of your kick. And then from 100 up to probably 250, that's more like low end of the bass. 250 is kind of low end of snare and guitar. Or 500 kind of low end of uh, snare maybe even. Maybe guitar could be more like 250. But And you just kind of go from there and find what works. I mean, it, I, I don't really have any crazy unique things. It's all kind of, you know, reinventing the wheel anyway. It's all just trying to get a powerful sound to come forward. So, I mean, I'll start with getting the kick and bass to be, you know, carrying the same weight with each other and then maybe snare and the bite of the guitar guitar, like the high end of the guitar and getting vocals sit therein. That one's always a challenge. So, you know, that just comes into tone, finding what tone works and also uh a big thing is like mic choice with vocals because you get the right mic in there it's going to make a real big difference and it's going to make your life a lot easier because vocals are really difficult to uh you know if it's just if if certain frequencies aren't aren't cutting through it's uh then you start having to get into like the multi-band compression stuff and really just throw in 1500 plugins on it to tame it and it's that's where it gets real rough that's why I try and avoid out of the gate. So yeah, and then I guess it's less of an issue potentially in recording, but you're then you start dealing with latency and introducing more phase challenges that you mm -hmm. have to correct and all that fun stuff. Do you have a a vocal mic that you use is your go to? Like, what do you what do you like in your studio more often than not? Um, hmm. see, so, yeah, uh, at at the one that I'm usually at at, at Covenant is uh, we have a Corby Cat system, um, which is a I don't think they really make them anymore, but they have hot swappable capsules that are real good emulations of other things. Um, so I usually do like a, a U47 capsule, or I've been really into the 251 lately. Um, so that's that's usually what I use there. At the other studio I work at, B24. Uh, the Chandler, I don't know what it, I think it's just like Chandler, Mike, whatever. Um, that one is a really, really good go-to. Uh, and also they, they just picked up, uh, an actual 251. So I'm, I haven't had the opportunity to use that yet, but I've been listening to, I'm listening to like, hey, we just got this and threw it up and you know tried out some stuff and I'm like, I want to get my hands on that. So I think uh, I think my ear naturally goes more to 251 sound since that's the uh, since that's the one that's come up twice now. So, <laughs> are you seeing people um, speaking of technology and the emulation? Are you seeing more guys coming into the studio with profiling amps or modeling amps, or is there still more of a demand for you know the the real heavy you know tube sound? Well, that see, that's a weird one because you, uh, I don't know. We have at both studios, we have a bunch of different guitar heads. At B twenty four, we have a ton of different guitar heads, real boutiquey, crazy high end, and things get people get these wide eyes, and they want to try out everything. And the problem, it, it's a blessing and a curse. the The downside of a lot of this emulation stuff is that people no longer really know how to dial in good tones. And honestly, I've, I've felt that personally where like there's been times where I just cannot get 
this $15,000 guitar amp to sound good. And I'm just like, what is, what is wrong with me? Like I, maybe it's been a while since I work with real amps or whatever. Like, so that's always a, uh, a thing, but the plus side is that a lot of this stuff sounds really good. Like, uh, that's, that's sort of the thing. I think when I started out doing recording stuff, you know, plugins and emulation and stuff did not sound that good. You could, you could come across one that did get the job done, but I think now, uh, it's getting so close that I don't know, there, there's still something to be said for that little, you know, 10% something that it gives you. But, you know, I'm a big, I'm a huge Kemper fan. Um, we've, we had a Kemper, uh, and Josh got one when Kempers were like a shameful thing when it was like, it was like, Oh, John Mayer was seen using a Kemper. Oh my gosh. Like it was, it was this brand new thing. And we had one like it's it's old. The one I have at Covenant is like all the LEDs are out on it. It's one of the old lunchbox ones. This thing has stood the test of time. And like I love it for lead stuff and, you know, layers and anything like that. I think just a, a solid rhythm tone. I still like just having a real amp in there. But I feel like it just comes down to preference and what sounds good. You know, there's no reason that something that's air quote fake or digital or low end or whatever there's no reason that it can't sound good it's just does it sound good you know so yeah yeah your ear doesn't lie uh and ultimately i guess you know if it sounds good you and the listener enjoys it then i it really probably doesn't matter where the the source emanated from yeah it's it's a i I think it's a it's just a thing of pride a lot of people have yeah i uh i'm a guitar hack uh I'm, I should probably be banned from touching any guitar, but <laughs> <laughs> I had a uh, Mesa Mark V for a while, and I could not get the sound out of that that I thought I wanted to get. You know, I was trying to emulate Chevelle and, and Metallica mm-hmm. and things like that, you know, Master of Puppets tone. And then I got a screaming deal on a Kemper, and all of a sudden those tones were <laughs> right there exactly what I wanted. Yeah. And I was like, oh. Yeah, and it's like, it's, and it's not, there's nothing wrong with it. And that's the other thing. Um, I think that when it comes down to this, I think where I start to have an issue with it is when you have sort of these like pretengineers who have a, a Kemper and a, um, and a profile pack and they have a, a mid, like a road NT2 mid range mic. They've got, uh, they're using Reaper and they have a, an old drum kit with triggers on it and they go, Hey, I'm a, I'm an engineer. Come do your album with me. I think that's where I start getting to getting, I don't know, uh, uncomfortable might be the word or uneasy. Um, I think the art, I don't want to be one of these people who's like, Oh, kids these days with their computers, you know, they're ruining the recording industry. No, I, I think that, uh, it's really, it's really awesome that, Nowadays, for under a thousand dollars, you can make really good sounding recordings if you put the time in and you want to do that. That's that's not the issue. I think where I start getting an issue is when people start trying to make a business out of it and they start trying to wear that hat of engineer when they don't know that kind of stuff. They they don't understand how to use analog gear. They don't understand the the different ways of micing stuff up or the different benefits or disadvantages to, you know, real drums and stuff like that. And it's, 
that's where I start to kind of get frustrated. I, I think I don't want to be one of these curmudgeons who is uh, um, not on the wait, right side of history. Is that the right thing? Um, you know, I, I don't want to be against change, but I think there is still a factor there where there is value to, you know, knowing what you're doing with that kind of stuff. Oh yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, I didn't mean to step on you there, but I was just going to draw a parallel to the live sound industry. Also, um, I've been doing production since the late eighties. I got started doing live sound and with the advent of technology, it's gotten so much easier for anybody to go to guitar center and buy a little digital mixer with some plugins. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden they're a sound guy. And a lot yeah. of, them, a lot of them are good at it. You know, I'm not going to lie. And they, they make that stuff sound really good. But it does just sort of burn you a little bit when you look at this. Yeah. Well, the, the thing that I've noticed is that it, the biggest problem it comes up with is like troubleshooting. It, it, it goes, it, there's been so many people who have come into a, a studio I'm working at and go, oh, uh, can I put these plugins on a flash drive and put them on there? I'm like, no. I mean, like, that's not, I mean, unless you want to just transfer all your iLock licenses to us, sure. But um, it's just like, oh, well, I need this specific thing with this specific preset on it. Otherwise, I don't know how to get a kick drum to sound good. And it's like, well, okay, then work on getting a kick drum to sound good. You know, like it, it's not there. At the end of the day, you're not going to be less of a person for having spent time to get really good at something. So, and I think that's kind of an art that's getting lost is people don't want to just screw with stuff to screw with stuff. They don't want to make something sound better for the sake of making it sound better. It's more... Well, I mean, I, I paid $300 for this guitar plug-in. Why does it sound perfect? It's like, well, I mean, it'll, yeah, it'll get you there. You know, and I think that's, that's, that's the biggest thing is you can, you can do a lot more with a lot less now. But at the end of the day, when all the cars are on the table and shit hits the fan, do you know how to make it work with nothing, with none of that working? Yeah. You know, like I had, I, um, not too long ago, I had a, session and half of the half the console for some reason a whole bank lost all of its phantom power and i was like okay well i can't use condensers now so how am i going to mic up this drum kit and it's like it's things like that where you can't look at a client and say oops sorry we can't do it today you have to you have to smile and go hey uh why don't we take a little lunch break real quick um i gotta make some phone calls and uh yeah we'll reconvene in 30 minutes and then as soon as the door closes and they leave you go what am I going to do? This is not good. Like you start panicking and you figure it out. And it's like, that's kind of how it has to be done, you know? And, and I think a lot of, you know, I don't want to say younger guys, but a lot of people who haven't been doing it very long, they just don't know how to troubleshoot stuff. They don't know, you know, they don't know how to, how to cope when their, you know, ideal thing isn't happening. So. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, that's, that's a great point. Um, I know you're, you are still a fan of the analog side of things. I know you've got a lot of uh, analog compressors that you like to use at one of the studios. Um, have you found yourself changing your approach towards mixing uh, or recording with technology? Or are you still sort of the dyed-in-the-wool, you know, uh, you have your approach and you go with that and you stay with that. Are you, what sort of adjustments have you made over the years as you've been recording more and, and doing more in the studio? Well, I've always made a big point to be able to do both for, for the thing, for the reasons we were just talking about. Like, I don't want to be like, well, 
and unless we've got like an eight thousand dollar vocal chain i can't make vocals sound good it's like you know if someone sends me some stuff they did in their bedroom with an sm58 straight into a focus right pre or whatever something like cool i gotta be able to figure out how to make that work um so i i make sure to be real well versed on both um at the end of the day, I'm not really, I'm not tracking the tape or anything. It's going from whatever outboard gear I have into a real clean ADDA converter and into a computer, into Pro Tools and stuff. So, um, so yeah, there's, there's time. And that's the other thing is it's kind of like, I look at analog gear, like, uh, photography or anything. You can, you can have a little, point and shoot camera that shoots at 20 megapixels or have some big DSLR that shoots at 15 megapixels, not even the same quality. But what you can do with that DSLR is way more expensive. You can make it to where you take that picture and it's exactly how you want it done. Whereas the other one, you're going to have to put in all these edits and stuff to get it how to sound how you want. And that's kind of how I view outboard gear is for better or for worse, you're making a commitment to that sound. And there's been times where it's totally bit me in the ass and like I over compress something or just something sounds good in the moment. And I go, well, I either have to redo that or, you know, figure out how to deal with it. But, uh, you know, those mistakes are super valuable, um, for sure. Uh, and that's kind of thing. I, I like to do a, a good mixture of both. I, I stay well-versed on both. So, you rattle off some technology bits there, uh, your your ADDA converters, um, your board, your preamps, things like that. Uh, can you walk us through some of your favorite equipment that you're that you're using at either studio right now? Um, as far as uh, converters and stuff, I, we have an Orion thirty two Analog Audio one at Covenant, and then using the Apogee Symphonies at uh, at B twenty four. Those I don't really have an opinion on it's that that's that like kind of hardware software side that computer integration rooms like if hey if it works cool you know I don't, yeah. someone smarter than me knows more about that um what about like console and and uh any are you do you have any special you know like neve preamps or anything like that that you guys are using? yeah at, at b24 we have a, a, a ssl duality uh 48 channel full thing and uh, uh my big go-to is the uh, waves ssl channel plug-in so when we got that it was like holy shit i get like the actual versions of this plug-in that i've used so it was like it was just like meeting an old friend just pick up right where we left off i'm like i would throw this these settings on a kick drum all day long and the, oh my god i just put it on this one it sounds just like like it's it was great um big fan of like ssl stuff um do a lot of like uh Vintech, like X73s. I use a lot of Chandler LTD ones, any of those 1073, you know, like, like, uh, the 473s, you know, are great. Um, anything 1073 for drums and whatnot. I'm a big API fan. I love the 512s. The 550Bs are always great too. Um, and these are really just things that I'm comfortable with because I've used for years and years. So that can be a part of it. Obviously you got like 1176 and all that stuff. Um, got a couple purple audio ones, a covenant and, uh, the MC 77s. And then, um, uh, quite a few different versions of it in B24. I couldn't even think, I know we have some Yuri ones and, um, or the Yuri LA three, a actually, um, big fans of those as well. Uh, 
Is that all outboard or are you using? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah. And the, and the thing is, is, uh, since there's software emulations of so many of these things that are really pretty good, it's, uh, when you don't know what to do with it, you can get a good starting point by just pulling up a preset and going like, Oh, what is this on the computer? Okay. Let me dial that into the real thing and then mess with it from there. And that's, that's really how I've learned to use a lot of this stuff that I have just no idea messing with. Cause it's, it's one thing to just plug something in and then just start turning knobs and going for it. It's another thing to like get it kind of 70% there and go, okay, this is a jumping off point. Where do I, you know, how do I improve upon this? And, you know, it just kind of saves time. Um, but a huge fan of distressors. I cannot stress that enough. Um, yeah, I love distressors more than anything. It's probably one of the most universal pieces of gear that I use. So those, those make it on to just pretty much anything I do. Can you talk a little bit about how are you how you are using those and and where? Um, distressors actually, I've, I've usually used on overheads a lot. I'm usually more of eleven seventy six guy on kick and snare. Um, been using distressors on toms lately as well. Uh, it's, I, I mean, you know, as with any sort of compression, it it brings the bleed out, which is never ideal. But or actually, sometimes it is ideal if you get the right phase and everything, and you've got like you know, low EQ toms and you're getting the snare drum ringing through those toms, you can really get some ridiculous beef coming out of the bleed from the toms. So that's, that's a cool thing. But, um, yeah, usually I'll just kind of smash my overheads depending on what I'm trying to do. If it's sort of a rock thing and all I need is just sizzle and stuff. Cool. Just destroy my overheads, get the snare out of there, kill all the transients and just get crispy symbols out of it. Um, usually with vocals, uh, mellow it out a little bit with 1176 and then sort of smash it a little harder with the distressor just to level everything out. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm really aggressive with my compression for sure. And you're obviously doing a lot of parallel compression. Yeah, that's, that's definitely a, definitely a thing. Um, parallel compression I'll usually do in the box because I can make it, I can, I don't have to commit on how destructive I'm making it. You know, sometimes I, I will want to just throw it to the nuke setting, put the input all the way up and like, you know, just completely destroy it. And then afterwards I'm like, ah, I wish I didn't do that. So I, I usually will lean on the safer side of parallel compression and usually do that stuff in the box. So, yeah, it's funny. You mentioned the nuclear nuclear option there. I was uh, talking to Drew Thornton offline a couple of weeks ago and he was showing me these compression settings and he's like, dude, I got to show, show you something that's super cool, but man, I got to warn you, this is a nuclear bomb because if it goes sideways, you're going to ruin your whole show. <laughs> oh, yeah. And, oh, uh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's funny how uh, you can get really destructive really quickly and things can get out of hand for those who have not experienced that before. Yeah, I mean, it, it can be cool, but it, it's, and again, it's learning. Um, and that uh, that kind of brings it more into like the touring thing for me is uh, mistakes are a great thing. If everything is going correctly, you have no idea how to fix something going wrong. And the thing is, like, if something goes wrong and you've had that thing go wrong before, you know exactly where to start to remedy it. So um, as a touring guy, I embrace any sort of error because it it's a learning opportunity. It goes, okay. And then I start kind of mentally making a checklist of, you know, what could go wrong. And eventually you have a sort of foolproof setup. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, that's a that's a great segue. Um, man, the time has been flying by. I'm just looking at the clock here, and and we're we've been 
talking up a storm and it seems like we just started chatting a minute ago but um can you talk a little bit about some of your touring i know you're more a, a recording uh engineer but you've done some things with some other groups and how did you make the transition how did you get into the the touring world um that's not usually an easy jump for people yeah i had a, I had a buddy of mine who was played bass in a band i was in and he started driving for a band and they had a guy a monitor engineer that wasn't working out and so he called me up or he told them he's like hey i might know a guy who could do that so he called me up and he's like hey do you know anything about this i'm like not really but i could figure it out and that's kind of between sessions i was like ah study pay why not and so i just hopped on i was like all right let's just do this so i started doing uh, monitors for the uh for the band shaman's harvest and you know just throughout sound checks it was like i was like oh i can play guitar i guess i'll check this while the guitarist is getting something to eat or oh, i'll check drums and so then it kind of turns into guitar tech drum tech thing and i'm restringing and then eventually i'm wearing like 1500 different hats and um so yeah i was sort of kind of a everything i guess they would call that backline tech now um so just doing like monitors and that for them and then uh did another record with norma jean and they were like i was like hey you need a guitar tech or whatever because i did this for this other band and they're like well uh could you do lights i'm like eh, sh yeah <laughs> so i because i had kind of been messing with uh figuring out lights for my own band just as a hobby and so i knew i had a few months to prepare so i was like well sure let me say yes and you know put my money where the mouth is and got got involved with that and so i did uh a few tours with them doing lights and whatnot and that's how i uh met alex and jeff and all them the steel panther guys through that um so uh yeah and then more recently uh for you know better or for worse uh i was doing backline stuff with trapped which is they're now in the they're now in the news for entertaining reasons but uh so yeah it's just been a kind of bunch of different random groups doing random things so yeah that's uh well and i mentioned it earlier i met you through steel, through steel panther uh and really enjoyed hanging out with you and seeing what you were doing with lights um so looking at that side of things for just a couple of minutes here you had a pretty interesting setup for your lighting rig uh and it gave you a little bit of trouble on the first show uh, which i was surprised oh, yeah. to hear <laughs> uh, yeah it was a uh, pretty disastrous um i had a I basically had like a midi control wing running into my laptop and everything and it uh and then the steel panther thing was something i fell into really randomly and it was one of the biggest things i had done a huge real big opportunity for me i was super nervous and just felt like i had to take it um uh and actually i'll i'll sidetrack sidetrack real yeah, yeah quickly um i fell into that because uh Jeff Holcomb, uh, he did lights for Periphery and Norma Jean did a tour with them. So I was kind of the other lighting guy, knew each other through that. Periphery came to town about a year ago and went to the show, reconnect with him. Hey, it's been a while, this, that, and the other. And a week later, he goes, hey, I, there's a Steel Panther tour that I can't do. Could you do it? And, and I thought back to a while ago, I had befriended this drum tech who is real, real well-known, worked on, you know, a bunch of real A-list stuff. And he had hit me up and he's like, Hey, can you do this tour? And I turned it down, um, because I had, you know, just a really short weekend run. And 
uh, full disclosure, I turned it down because I was really nervous about it because I knew that this guy was an A-list guy. And I was like, man, I, I, there's a lot of big shoes to fill. I don't know. And so I kind of made up some BS reasons. I'm like, Oh my, you know, my, my tools are out of town and this and that. I don't think I can do it. He's like, all right, no worries. And about a week later, I like, I was looking at the dates and everything. And I came to figure out, find out that I had turned down a drum tech for anthrax on Slayer's farewell tour. And it was like really crushing to me. And I was just like, I was, I was real bummed out. I was like, man, that was an opportunity that could have changed my life. Even you don't know, you have no idea. Yeah. And, um, and so I made a deal with myself. I'm like, you know, if I, if opportunity comes knocking again, like I need to be ready to, and not to say yes to something that I'm totally can't do, but I need to be able to like weigh the options and go, can I do this? And if so, I got to do it. So when Jeff hit me up about a steel Panther thing, I thought back to that and I was like, uh, I, I gotta do this. Like, this is that thing where I need to, there's something I need to do for me. Um, so I called my buddy up. I'm like, Hey, I got this. He's like, dude, you need to do it. And I was like, yeah, shit. I know. I know. I just need someone else to tell me that I had to do it. Um, so I, so I got involved with that. So going into this thing, I'm like, this is a great, this is a huge opportunity. I never done anything like this before. You know, I've, I've worked weeks and weeks getting this whole show programmed out, this, that, and the other. And as they're walking on stage, my whole control wing dies. <laughs> and I'm just panicked because the house LD isn't there. I can't switch open over to his board. And I just had to fumble through the show. And then the next day was New York. And so I ended up walking to BH Photo Video and just like buying a whole new setup that day. And after that, it was fine. But it was... Uh, it was one of those just like uh, nightmares you have when you're just like naked in front of the whole things. I, I remember, uh, I remember Michael being on stage being like, Oh, let's, let's hear for a new lighting guy. Ben. I'm like, no, don't do that. I'm having the worst night of my life. And I don't need a sold out crowd looking at me, please. No, don't. That was, so Boston. That was, a, that was a tough one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. You mentioned walking to BH uh, while in New York, I did the same thing because I managed to lose a bunch of equipment uh, stitched up heart left Los Angeles about two weeks before we met up with Panther and we did, you know, 10 or 11 shows between Los Angeles and Boston. And somehow I managed to leave like one fairly important thing at almost every venue along the way. Right. So when I got to be, when we got to New York, I was like, all right, I, I just got to restart replacing some stuff here. Yeah. I, I, I ended up leaving a, a, power distribution thing somewhere and i was just humiliated having to tell nick like yeah i left and he's such an unflappable like chill dude he's like oh dude no worries and like in 30 seconds he's made a phone call and it's like oh yeah it'll be the next venue and i'm like shit okay but it's just so uh, it, it was just one of those like kind of vaguely out of my element like man uh like i it, i don't know you, you grow really well in situations like that so i was like you know i just need to do it but at the same time super intimidating being around guys like that who are just really good at what they do you know yeah no i i definitely felt that pressure but also i didn't feel pressure because everybody yourself included was just so easy to work with on the tour and you know yeah they're everybody's awesome at what they do and they know exactly what they're doing but you know there was never a, a sense of like you know arrogance or or difficulty at all it was it was really a dream tour for me so yeah. I mean, it, it reminds me of that old, and that's the thing. Like, I think everybody just kind of falls into touring and stuff and you find your families on the road. And, and, and then when you return home from tour, you realize you have this family all over the United States and like any, any, almost any time you go on a vacation or somewhere else, like, 
oh, I'm in this state. Oh, I've got five people I can call and say, hey, yeah. what's up? Let's let's go hang out. And um, but yeah, it reminds me of like this this joke that I heard one time where it was like, you know, someone asked, how did I become a stagehand? And it's like, well, I I went backstage and I asked if uh, I asked where the bathroom was, and someone handed me a crescent wrench. And 20 years later, I still don't know where the bathroom is. And it's like it's that sort of thing. It's like you know, once you go we're all just squirrels trying to get a nut here. Every single day is different. Every single day has its challenges. Um, it becomes a little easier to not take yourself so seriously and not worry about stuff when you go like, yeah, everyone's got stuff to worry about. You know, yeah. no one's got it totally figured out. Yeah. Uh, speaking of figuring it out, did you ever find your luggage? I did not. No, I, I, uh, I had, I had luggage that went missing in Wisconsin. I, to this day, I think it was stolen. I had a really sick pair of vans in there. They're like, covered in like chicken and waffles there's they're uh they're awesome shoes but uh no i i was i was clothesless i didn't know for, that you uh, lost it in, i didn't know you lost that in wisconsin was it in milwaukee that you lost it or no it wasn't the rave it was at a uh, uh, no oh well, it was it was one of the really nice like modern like uh monroe live oh michigan yeah yeah, yeah, Michigan. Yeah, yeah, that was an awesome venue. Oh my gosh! That, oh yeah, that was really good. That was actually one of the few shirts that I had left because I got a uh, Monroe Live T-shirt while I was there. So I was like, all right. So I've been, I was wearing that like every day after that. Yeah, I won't tell the story about underwear, so we'll save that for another time. But uh, right, yeah. Uh, any other fun touring stories that you want to share or uh, relive? Um, I don't know. I, I had a, I had a few think about it. Um, we did a, uh, did a Sean's harvest did a tour with Daughtry and Nickelback that was huge. And it was like an eighth month, eight month long tour. Um, and that was, that was for sure life changing because it was going from, you know, clubs and stuff to all of a sudden you're playing arenas yeah. and it, and it was just really like, crazy to be on and um i remember a, a lot of the stories that have always stuck with me were from that where uh um i was always like a nickelback fan growing up as like younger because it was they were just such a popular band you know you had like sure. how you remind me and there, there was some special memories whenever you're on like a festival with a band that you listen to growing up or something like that and you're like watching that happen in front of you and like and there was a few moments there where i was like standing side stage and they're doing that in front of you know thirty thousand people and i'm like man i remember hearing this song on the radio when i was like going to grade school and i'm like and 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 for some reason i followed my dreams and now i'm here now in some little way i'm helping this happen i'm you know and and, and that's those are always those cool like sentimental things um i remember one day I was I was wearing this like bright yellow Randy Savage shirt. It just is like him. He's just like flexing this old WWF thing. And I'm sitting there side stage watching the Nickelback show, um, having a few drinks, hanging out. And like I look over and I see this person who looks vaguely familiar. And I'm like, and he we kind of make eye contact. And he's looking at me. I'm looking at him. And I start to go, no, that's not. And then I go over and I, I walk over to him. I'm like, are you? who i think you are and he was like i think i am and it turns out it was uh it was brett hart the wrestler and he's sitting there and he's like you know randy was a great man wow because <laughs> he had seen my shirt whatever i was like what i'm like i'm sitting here with brett brett the hitman yeah, Hart right yeah. now yeah just weird and then uh i remember another night um 
Chad Kruger. I mean, a lot of people say it's Kroger, but I always heard him say Kruger, but um, maybe it was a joke. Who knows? But uh, he, he came on the Shaman's Harvest bus, and I happened to be with the drummer, and we were off. Um, we were off doing something. I can't remember what it was, but we we were meeting the bus at the next stop. And we uh, and so we weren't there, and he, it, Chad came on the bus and was, like, hanging out with all them. And the next day I go back, and they're like, dude you gotta go talk to chad i'm like hey, what excuse me they're like yeah he came on the bus and he was and he, and he brought you up and i was like what are, what are you talking about and he's like yeah he was like you know your guys is like a guitar tech something a, a bearded guy whatever and they're like oh yeah ben he's like yeah i don't think he likes me they're like what like he's like yeah he never really talks to me that much whatever when i see him in, in passing and say hi and, he never and they're like no, no no he's just kind of one of these guys that if he doesn't have anything to say he doesn't really say it he's like no he actually is pretty big nickelback fan actually and so they get back and i'm like having this twilight zone moment i'm like the singer of nickelback thinks i don't like him or something like i feel like he'll be like no dude it's, it's we're cool you know so it's like it you just find yourself in really weird situations and like the bigger of a tour you're on the more weird it gets like steel panther always had like it had weird stuff too like every band has weird moments and that's you know that's kind of the there's those little nuggets that are always fun yeah i uh i feel i i very similar with in mentioning steel panther so i never thought that darren liked me the drummer uh because yeah you know darren's like all business and he's sort of this intimidating oh, yeah. guy and he's always you know he's he's ripped he's you know strong and big and mm-hmm. um and so one day we were at planet fitness one morning in i can't remember what city it was in but uh i'm on the treadmill and he comes right up alongside of me and he's you know running on the treadmill next to me and we start chit-chatting and uh he goes hey man do you want to do some abs with me and then i looked at him i go does it look like i do abs right. <laughs> it, it cracked him up and then after that you know he's he we started chit-chatting more and uh yeah, it's just funny how, you know, you think that somebody's got this impression of you and you're completely off base just because you tell yourself a story. Yeah, I mean, my biggest problem is, like, I never really start chatting with people or connect with people to, like, the last week of tour. And I'm like, ah, oh, man, I, I wish I would have gotten to know that person better. So that's always one of those things going into a new one where I'm like, all right, I'm going to really, like, hang out with people. And yeah. then, you know, then my whole control wing goes down and I bury myself my computer for the next three weeks and you know yeah you're cracking me up because i had no idea that that thing had died in boston until you told me uh after the fact and it was but i was also you know starstruck because we went the night before with with stitched up heart we were in scranton pennsylvania playing a a hundred cap club you know for decker's hometown Mm -hmm. and then we go from that to the 3500 seat you know, House of Blues, it's sold out. And I was just like, holy cats. Last night I was mixing on, you know, two QSC speakers on a stick. And now I'm in front of a million and a half dollar D&B array. So. Right. Yeah. I mean, that it, it was like that on that, uh, on that Nickelback tour as well, because it, uh, you know, kind of shotgunned into it, the little sprinkles here and there between things we would, be doing these headliner shows and these you know like you're saying like these small you know couple hundred cap places and then the next night it's you know backline calls at 11 a.m and there's you know forklifts and all this stuff like building the stage in this arena and it's like a it's like oh yeah last night is like a couple hundred people and this night tonight's thirty five thousand people like you know where you got like video walls and like you know like 
theatrical sets and stuff being made and i'm just sitting here tuning a guitar like what have i gotten myself into right like this is insane yeah it's uh, but that i mean that's kind of the fun of it is it's you never know what you're gonna get and that's uh you know you gotta think on your feet and that's you know that's a variety is the spice of life you know (laughs) yeah i could not have said that better well, hey, man, we're we're over an hour, uh, and like I said, this time just flew by. Uh, I really appreciate you coming on and, and recording this a second time. Um, this was really fascinating, and I, I feel like I learned a ton, so I appreciate you enduring my uh, amateur questions around recording. Uh, hopefully nothing was too uh, off the wall. Oh, no, it's great, man. It's a, it a great time. Cool. I'd love to be back whenever. Yeah, I'd love to get you back on because um, you know I'd like to talk a little bit more about that arena experience with Nickelback and then dive back into recording and learn more about that process. But I think we should call it good here. Um, I really, yeah, I, I said it, but I, I really appreciate your time today. It, this was truly enjoyable and, and really eye-opening and fascinating. So thanks, Ben. Yeah, absolutely. Thank right. you for having me. Yeah, my pleasure. We'll talk soon. Sounds good. And that's a wrap on today's show. I hope that you found it equal parts entertaining and informative. This show is recorded on an Allen and Heath D-Live system with Sure microphones and Waves tracks live. I use Skype, FaceTime, and Facebook Messenger to meet with my guests, so the occasional robot voice is to be expected. Thanks again to Merrick Goodwin for the awesome show music and to you for listening. Be sure to visit the Mixmasters website at www.mixmasterspodcast.com. Subscribe to the podcast and tell a friend. Mixmasters can also be found on Facebook and Instagram at Mixmasters Podcast. That's all one word. Give a like, follow us, and never miss out on new episodes. 